0: morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good. (laughs) It's good. Brian and Debbie, good to see you. Hi, everybody. Uh, Let's open the scriptures. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're in a series on the things that make us want to Quit God. <laughs> the things that make us want to quit church, the things that make that shake our faith to the bone. And today we're talking about how church can be the thing that makes us not want to go to church. <laughs> church is a complex thing for me, <laughs> as it is for many of you. Uh, it may not surprise you. It may. I sometimes too want to quit church. And when I think about my own wounds and my own suspicions and my own cynicism, it makes me think about an interaction I once read about between a poet and a monk. The poet was expressing guilt because he was keeping his kids out of church. And the monk asked... Why are you keeping your kids out of church? And the poet answered, I believe church will make atheists out of my kids. I remember the first time I read that, and I thought i get that. Sometimes it's the church that makes atheists out of our kids and out of us. It's one of the primary reasons we question. I know very few people who have left the church who, for, and there wasn't a prior wound that was present in their life, either from a church or a church leader or a parent who had taught them something about faith. And so today we get to ask, what do we do with our hurts and our wounds? when they come from the church. I'm going to be in Ecclesiastes 5, reading the words of Solomon, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 7. If you haven't found Ecclesiastes yet, you probably won't by the time I read this, so you should just listen. (laughs) This is God's word. Uh, Guard your steps, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Beware the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one that you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, let the, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Um, The first thing I want us to see is that the scriptures, there's a realism here when it talks about the risks of going to church. Solomon starts by saying, Guard your steps. Beware the church. Why? Because there are fools that go to church. And there is folly in the church. There be fools at church. Did you know? Usually they're the ones talking. Uh, And it's not that there's not fools or foolishness everywhere. You can find fools online. Just as easy as you can find them in the church. You can find them in LPS. You can find them in any political rally. There's fools and hypocrisy and pain and hurt everywhere. And it's not that there's not folly in your own heart. Yep, it's there too. Um, It's just when foolishness and folly comes from someone who identifies themselves with God and with a voice that says, thus saith the Lord, that's a foolishness and folly that is hard to bear. There is a uniqueness that comes with the pain of a church wound. Dan Koch, who has done um, some initial research into spiritual abuse, puts it like this. He, said that, he says that religion is like nuclear Fission. When well done, nuclear fission can give us free electricity indefinitely. Like with a little bit of care and a little bit of stewardship, it can be this tremendous power source of energy and flourishing. But when done poorly, it can melt a reactor, kill 10,000 people, and radiate lands for millions of years. What we do when we spiritually hurt someone is we don't just harm them, but in the same move, we cut them off from what is their ultimate source of healing. And we make it harder for a person to use their faith and to use their spirituality to draw near to the source of life. That's hard. Many of us have experienced that pain. And that has made us weary. That has made us hesitant. That has made us worn out. That has made us guarded. And you are risking right now. To be here. And to listen to me. I say thank you. But can you be encouraged that Solomon says that it's a very sane and wise thing that you're on guard? (laughs) That that God through His servant Solomon tells us that, that God Himself is not naive about what goes on in church. He's aware of what goes on in the houses that bear His name. And this loving warning to beware of church actually originates with him be on guard why because of all the foolish words and I am totally aware of the irony as I stand here speaking so don't I'm shaking in my boots just believe me it's a noisy place church And you see it there in the passage. Almost everything has to do with speech or words. This critique, this warning. It's about all the noise. Now let's be clear. There's a certain kind of noise that God loves. He he loves the sound of new neighbors being greeted. He loves the sound of, of tears being shared and shed over holy things. He loves the sound of worship being rendered. He loves it when Mona comes in and I can hear her on the daycare side of the building. (laughs) I think he likes it when Isaac does the caca voice when the bats come out. And he tries to there are sounds that God loves. And there are certain kinds of noise that he does not appreciate. Because it makes the church a dangerous place. And first, it is the sound of people saying one thing and doing another. It's right there in verse 1. He says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So, true worshipers, the wise, they come to listen. To obey, to conform their life to God's heart. But there are others who come and they offer what he calls the sacrifice of fools religious devotion and action without heartfelt obedience. They go through the motions but their heart is far from God. Lots of God talk and God action. Lots of ritual, but not a lot of fruit of the Spirit. Not a lot of true devotion. Not a lot of mercy and justice and a broken and contrite heart, the sacrifices that God says He loves. This is the kind of stuff that the prophets in the Old Testament talk about all the time. In those early pages in Isaiah, he's like, you guys are great at new moons and Sabbaths and sacrifices, but you know what you're not good at? Seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. It's the sacrifice of fools. There's hypocrisy in the church. There are also boastful promises. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words a dream comes with much business you think about churches and their dreams their business statements their vision statements about what the the house of god is going to do for you and the city it's going to be your best friend it's never going to let you down your small group is going to be the most healing thing that you've ever been a part of. The church is going to change the world. It's going to redeem the city. Careful. Careful. A dream comes with a lot of business and a fool's voice with many words. And a church can overpromise about what it can be and about what it will achieve. And when it over promises, it hurts people because those boastful promises become broken promises. So notice all of the language about making a vow and keeping it. You you make a vow with much words and with great vision about what you're going to do, but then the church doesn't follow through. And when it doesn't follow through, it hurts people. And that happens on both a corporate level and on an individual level. Poor relational follow-through is the source of so much pain in the church. Flakiness. I'll be there for you. I'm looking at Mona. Mona asked me to reach out to her last week. I didn't reach. I said, I will reach out to you. And I did not. Reach out to her. And she forgave me. Poor, when our yeses are not yeses and our noes are not noes, we hurt people when we are not forthright in our speech. So our, our boastful promises lead to, to broken promises. And then there's just people letting their mouths lead them and others into sin, it says. And here I think about James 5, and I think especially about teachers Where it says, man, you shouldn't want to be a teacher because they're going to be judged with greater strictness because words can cause a fire and a fire can burn. And that's why many of us are hurting because teachers have taught us things that they shouldn't have taught us. And that hurts. They've taught us things about our bodies that make us feel ashamed. They, they've taught us things about God's heart that are evil. They've taught us that we need to perform to earn God's love. That God would love us if. The same places that have given us Jesus and the gospel have often us given us things that aren't Jesus and aren't gospel. And now we're left to untangle that mess There's a unique uh, kind of medical illness they call yatrogenic diseases. Is this right? I'm gonna, that's a word that I made up to make this illustration. No, I, it's, I think it's an actual thing. Yatrogenic diseases, which are diseases that you actually pick up at the hospital. So you go to the hospital to get better, but there's sick people at the hospital, and sometimes you catch their sickness so that the hospital can be a very dangerous place. The same thing is true of the church. Every person in this room has been handed the gospel and handed a faith in Jesus by an imperfect and broken community. And a lot of us are trying to untie the knots and to figure out what's, what's the meat? What's the bones? What's the gospel and what's culture? Am I trying to deconstruct God or am I trying to deconstruct the culture of this church that needs to change? So there's hypocrisy, there's unhealthy doctrine, there's boastful predictions, there's there's broken promises, and all of those can wound us, but what adds fuel to the fire is that when someone has the courage to actually bring these things up and bring them to the church, the issue is minimized, and there's a cover-up. So verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Get this. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. And so the messenger comes and says, your words have led yourself and others into sin. And the person says, oh, whoopsie. And instead of calling it a sin, they just call it a mistake. Oh, no, it's no big deal. They minimize, oh, I was busy. I didn't, that's why I didn't come through. I mean, life, aren't you busy? We're all busy. That's why I'm relationally flaky. Aren't we all flaky? There's a lot of pain that's caused from the church covering up the little and the big things. And so this is your picture. People walk into church and everybody's talking. And they're talking about the great things that they're doing and the big things that they're going to accomplish And they're talking about the big promises and they're boasting and they're making vows and they're going to pay them to God, but they don't follow through and it's all unrealistic. And as a result, it hurts people. And there's this hypocrisy of devotion because they can't even own up to their own mistakes and they say it's no big deal. And as a result, verse 1, evil. Is it verse 1? No, verse 1, yes, evil is there. I like this passage because evil, church abuse, church hurt, it can be like explicitly evil, like criminal. We know this. Or, or just notorious. We know that there's people who, who would go to pray and then put sheets on their heads and burn crosses. We can think about the names of the big celebrity church leaders and how we've seen them fall and the damage that's been done to so many Individuals and to the witness of the gospel as a result. But there is a form of this that is so much more subtle that Solomon wants to bring out. It's the ways that we hurt, the ways that we exclude, the ways that we shame, the ways that we boast, the ways that we speak for God and put words in his mouth. It is our boastful visions and our broken promises. And our, our cover ups. And if you've been around here, you will recognize these things. And I realize that I have folly in my heart, as you have folly in yours. And we need to ask one another for forgiveness. It says, Be on guard. But isn't that wise? Isn't that helpful? That, 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 that Solomon would do this? He really, he's really telling us a couple things. One, he's letting his readers know that he is not naive about what goes on in church. So they shouldn't be either. Church under the sun, as he would say in Ecclesiastes, is not heaven. And some of you are saying, that's for sure. I'm bored out of my mind right now. I don't think that's going to be heaven. God is not only aware of this, but he is going to do something about it. That's the other thing that he says. Ecclesiastes 5.6 Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Woo! And you say, ah, this is why I don't like the Bible. Because God's destroying stuff. And he's angry, and he's gonna destroy us, and I don't like that. And what I would say is, I get it, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, this is the, the context is the sacrifice of fools. The context is hypocrisy in the church. That's the thing that God judges. He is angry and destroys the work of whom? The fool in the church. He gets angry at who we hope he would get angry at. He does not intend to approve or favor those who use his name and his house in order to do evil to others. So guard your steps, it says. God isn't just happy when you just come to church. Just that there's bottoms in the pews. He doesn't look out at the church and go, Whoa! Look at all those people! God isn't that way. He, he, he doesn't look at growing numbers. He's looking to build a community of wisdom. A community of love. A contrast community that follows him and, and looks like him and he takes it Seriously. And so it says, guard your steps. When we gather in a house of God, we're to know that God, the, our gracious Lord is not unaware. And um, one day there will be a reckoning. And even as that makes me worried, <laughs> I am still glad to love and serve a God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so he says, it's wise. To beware. And he says, No, that God's not just aware, he's doing something about it. And the third thing he says and implies is maybe the most surprising thing of all. Even despite all that, he still wants you to go. Notice that it's be on guard when you go, it's not if you go. The whole idea of there being all this warning is that so you would go. Which means that the foolishness of people doesn't imply an absence of the genuine work of God. Or of the weeds don't imply that there's not wheat to be found. Solomon still assumes that God shows up in his house. From time to time. And as much as there have been broken things in my experience with the church. And there certainly have. There have been so many beautiful things. It has been amongst church folks and in houses of God. Where I have received my sense of of God. And in the worst seasons of my life. I cannot imagine handling them without houses of God or the people who attend them. You open up my cupboards and there are still empty Tupperware containers without number that used to be filled with all kinds of soup and other foods, some good and some bad, but all given in love at the worst moments in my life. A time when my marriage was about to fail and fall. I was about to be a young pastor without a marriage. Thinking, what's it like to be like four years into the pastorate and be divorced? And, and then to have a church come around you and love you and your wife and care about you. And hold you up and withhold you and bring you back to the Lord and bring you back to the cross. And bring you back to your vows people who have brought me gifts of truth, repentance, forgiveness, grace, relational wisdom, Bible words spoken in Jesus' name by Christ followers that gave me eternal life, that gave me grace, that taught me... Grace is still the most amazing thing that I've ever heard of, the idea of grace, that God loves me no matter what I've done, that that Jesus earned it all for me. And it's some weird guy... Named Mike Shue, who preached a lot about grace and also did some things that weren't so good. But he gave me Jesus and sanity from all the stuff in my own heart that threatens to hollow me out all the all the time. Real. It's not just the proud that are found in the church. It's also the humble people with true reverence for God. Real people who are tired of themselves, tired of the world's chatter. Who look to, to, to cultivate a sense of awe and reverence in God. People who don't cover up sins and failures. People who don't say, oops, I did it again. And just go on with the thing. But people who say, I sinned against you. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. People who bear with the foolish ones. Oh, man, those are the unsung heroes. They continuously bear with the hypocrisy. And their neighbors think that they're hypocrites because they go to church and they bear the brunt of that. And yet they see grace upon grace for every human being, even the weird, hypocritical, boastful, broken promise people that go to church, which is all of us. Why do you go? Because it's a blessing. Because you meet God there. Because we listen to God together. Because we seek to follow Him together. Because we, uh, we seek to own our sins together. Because we find forgiveness together. Because we go to the table with Him. Because we're welcomed there as a community. Because we can be known as wheat before the Lord when we were once weeds. The question is, how do we get more of that? And I think the, um, the text would offer a couple things to us. One, it said, instead of talking so much, how about you listen to God and cultivate a sense of the fear and awe of God, a reverence for Him. Crystal we pray before the service every uh, every week and Crystal prayed a prayer this morning that I thought was so appropriate. She just she she was praying that the Lord would lift each one of you and and me up like above the, the, the the cloud rack of like human concerns and human ideologies to like the peak of God's presence. Like to see the world from his perspective. We so want to bring God down to our level and to make him a cosigner to all the things that we care about instead of being quiet and letting him lift us above to the highest peak to have our minds blown by a God who is so much bigger than right or left or any other ideology. It's what we need to do And that's what he says at the end there. He says, God is the one who you must fear. And throughout the passage, notice it's God, 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 God. And fear here means reverence, esteem, love, delight in. This is what the house of God should be about. Sometimes we fill our worship spaces up with words. I understand I'm on like minute 25 of my sermon. I get it. But we need worship that will shatter our categories and expectations. It's what C.S. Lewis said is the sign that you're actually following God. In his book, A Grief Observed, he's talking about a picture he has of his wife, Joy, who had passed away. And he's talking about how he had actually begun to fall in love with the picture of his wife, Joy. More than Joy herself. And he says that we can do that with God. This is a quote. He says, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want joy, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become, in the end, a snare, an obstacle. Images of the holy easily become holy images, sacrosanct." My idea of God is not a divine idea. And here's here's where it gets good. He says, it has to be shattered from time to time. And God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. If we don't sometimes as a church have that experience, we bring our little ideas about who God is and what he wants to do in your life, in the world, we bring it to church, and if we don't allow him to shatter it, then we're not worshiping God. For those of us who follow Jesus faithfully, from time to time, he's going to shake us up. It's like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, and he's walking into the temple, and he sees the Lord. He's like, lifted up in the holy throne room, and his first word is like, No! Oi, pay! Hey! I'm a broken man! Those moments when God reveals himself, and we've realized that we've been wrong. He's he's not conservative. He's not progressive. He's above all that. We're on earth. He's in heaven, Solomon says. Heaven. Man, that moment when we see Jesus face to face and the first words out of our mouth will be, Ah! Oh! I'm going to do another vow. (laughs) Heaven will be the great deconstruction. Um, Karl Barth once wrote a set of books called The Church Church Dogmatics, 10 million words long. It said that he didn't even read the whole thing. And he said that in heaven, he'll get there and... He'll just throw it on the ground and in the waste paper basket because there's no words that can contain who God is. We need to create space for awe, for reverence, for the holiness of God. And we need to not only listen to God, we need to listen to one another. There's a lot of people asking questions and doubting right now. And the church is just not good at this. I read a statistic just this last week. So this was a national poll. People were asked the question, does the church you intend or had previously attend, uh, how comfortable did you feel at asking your real questions? 70% said they were not comfortable. And they would not speak their doubts to another person who attended their church. 70%. That's like a lot of percent. There's not very more percent above that percent we just got to get better at this, man. Um, there are people doing this better. There's, so the, devel- the developer of the children's church curriculum, Godly Play, built something utterly de- uh, majestic into their curriculum. So after reading the scripture to the children, the leader is supposed to ask, how did you see yourself in this story? What was your favorite part? And then comes the surprising question. What part of this story did you not like? And what happens next is powerful because the children are invited to bring their questions and their doubts and their problems into the presence of God and others. And even more powerful is that the leader isn't allowed to solve the tension. It just has to be. Doesn't Doesn't the Bible do that? Doesn't sometimes it make us wrestle with the tension? Don't you ask Jesus questions and then he tells you a weird story? Or asks you a question back? Sometimes he lets us live in the tensions. We have to listen to doubts and we have to listen to the pains and hurts. We can no longer minimize the stories of church abuse and pain that come from the, the, the big church and from our own particular church. We need to listen very much to Jesus about what, how he talks about power and how power can be misused. And that we don't use power like the Gentiles do. We are servants who give up our lives for others. Um, that doesn't mean we don't... Um, When we don't name or listen to folks, we perpetrate the harm that's being done. And the church must be so compassionate and not write anyone's story off. Pope Francis said that the ministry of the 21st century has to be the ministry of the ear. That we've spent the last 2,000 years with the ministry of the mouth. And I think he agrees with Solomon. It's really important that the church listen well. We need to become these healing communities again that heal our past and the ways we hurt one another. Places where wounds can be mended and bound because we serve a beautiful God. Um, and these pains are invitations from God to return to our apostolic impulse to be healing communities. Um, Finally, we just need better and more modest visions of the church. It's my last point. When I first started coming to Grace Chapel, almost every week they would say that, the, that Grace Chapel is a hospital for the sin sick. Have you ever heard that? Church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. There's something beautiful about that because what it's saying is that it's supposed to be a place for hurting people. What it doesn't communicate is that the church is also a place that really hurts people. Also, the only reason you would come to a hospital is if you're sick. What if you're feeling healthy? What if you feel like you're better? Then you stop going and attending. It's not a very good metaphor for what the church is. The metaphors that the scriptures themselves give us are more modest and humble, and they will serve us well. So I, I, I take a couple paragraphs as I close from A.J. Swoboda's book, After Doubt. He talks about the metaphors that the church actually has built upon. Uh, humble and beautiful. He says, consider Paul's metaphor of God's church as a mystery. As a mystery. The church is a mystery. It isn't something we enter into to get something from. The mystery doesn't exist to provide us with good feelings or to put our adrenal glands on overdrive. A mystery is simply something you enter. And when we enter within, subterraneous and hidden things take place that neither you nor I nor the awkward person next to you at greeting time rationally categorize it's simply a mystery and when it's a mystery friends the sermon might as well be in italian it doesn't matter when it's a mystery the way the music done is done becomes far less important than the fact that we are singing a mystery is a mystery a mystery is not understandable rational manageable or logical a mystery is is entered into simply because it is a mystery the church is a bit like Narnia's wardrobe, he says. Outside it looks dusty, useless, like an upstairs closet with nothing noteworthy inside. But inside awaits a whole new world of wonder in life and difficulties and challenges and dangers that if you are willing to take the risk will change your entire story forever. And our task is simply this, enter even with caution. One last metaphor. Or consider Paul's metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. In this instance, the church is a being, a person, a body, a beautiful woman on her wedding day. If we adopt Paul's metaphor, I suspect it might reshape the way we engage the church because the church is a person, and then he says, a 2,000-year-old person. And we must love her as such. And he says, old women move slower than we want. She isn't as fast as the world. But she is wise. That's okay, isn't it? We need one group of people who don't keep the same time with the rest of the world. And so when we critique her for not having a sermon that sounds as nuanced as NPR... Or when she isn't doing the things that the people on Twitter are doing. Or when she says odd, old things in her prayers. We can take a deep breath. We are with a very old bride. With a diversity of weird people. And here's the thing. Christ loves this woman. Warts and all. Can we? When we forget what the church is, which at its most basic is something that Jesus loves, we can dole out endless grace for everyone in the world except the community that taught us the mysteries of grace in the first place. And so we have endless streams of grace for the sinner, but none for the saint. Jesus was able to love her. Hallelujah. Even the hypocrites can recover. Even the ones who know they're not doing harm when they're doing harm can recover and have a Savior who said, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. Even a fool like Saul of Tarsus doing so much harm in God's name can be saved. And so we come to the heart of it. We all need Jesus, don't we? His mercy, His love. Without it, none of us could come into His presence. But with it, all of us are welcome in the house of God. Let's enter carefully. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your I don't know, your goodness, your, your, your wisdom in, in asking Solomon to write this and to say, be on guard, watch out. Um, there's risks in church, but it's worth it. I'm found there. The gospel's there. Jesus is there. Forgiveness is there. Awe is there. Reverence is there if we can just be quiet. And so I will for one moment. Thank you, Lord, for the mystery of grace. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.